Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13, and as you're turning there, uh, we'll be dismissing our children to our children's class, so uh, those who will be participating in that can make your way back to our volunteers there at the back, and they'll be there to greet you and to instruct you in the Lord's Word this morning as well. But as I mentioned, we are in Hebrews chapter 13. We are here approaching the end of uh, the book of Hebrews that we've spent uh, over a year in now at this point. And so uh, this morning we're going to be in verses 4 through 6, but I want to read 1 through 6. We began this section last week and uh, finishing up this section this morning, but I want to read the full context of verses 1 through 6. But again, we will be focusing in on verses 4 through 6. So let me read uh, our passage for us, and then we will pause and take a moment and pray and ask for the Lord's help. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear What can man do to me? Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the truth of your word. We're thankful for uh, the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross so that we could gather here this morning. Father, as we have already acknowledged and prayed, um, we need the forgiveness of Christ, the redemption of Christ to be at work in us. And we are thankful that because of what Christ has done, you have sent your spirit to dwell in us. And so we gather here together this morning in full confidence that you intend to accomplish Uh, beyond what we could ever ask or think within us through the truth of your word. Because we know that your spirit is at work in us. We know that your word is before us. And you have promised that it will be effective in your people when we fix our gaze on it. And so, Father, this morning, we all ask for your help. We need your help as we come before the truth of your word. We pray that you would give us soft and tender hearts ready to receive the truth that you have for us this morning. Father, I pray that you would use your word to convict us of sin so that we might uh, put it to death in our lives so that we would be able to pursue Christ. Father, I pray that you would bring encouragement to us where needed. I pray that you would bring hope to us, that you would fix our confidence and our faith in the promises that you have made to us and in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I ask for your help this morning as we handle these difficult topics of, of honoring marriage and of fighting against the temptation to love money. Father, we need your help. These are core driving desires of sin. And so we need the power of your spirit and the truth of your word to help us put these things to death in our life that we might honor you and worship you with the obedience of our lives. And we pray all this In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned, last week we began this section of Hebrews by looking at verses 1 through 3, which in many ways is a bit of an abrupt transition in the book of Hebrews because uh, all of a sudden you have this just list of commands. And we talked about how it can feel like a 
uh, uh, disjointed laundry list of commands that happen here in verses 1 through 6. Love each other. Show hospitality. Remember those in prison. Honor marriage. Don't love money. And because of the way it comes to us, it, it can certainly feel that way. But I just want to remind you that there is a, a context behind these verses. Exactly what we talked about last week, that there is what, what we called a a river of theology that's been established in these first 12 chapters flowing into these commands. There is an overarching theme of the book of Hebrews that is pressing into these commands in these six verses that are essential to understanding what these commands are calling us to. I think if we, if we don't grasp that or understand that, we're going to tend to get the main thrust of these commands completely wrong. So let's just briefly remind ourselves of the overall purpose of this letter. This letter was written to encourage struggling believers who were facing significant persecution to stay the course and not give up on Jesus. That's why the book of Hebrews was written. There was a group of first century Christians who were facing significant persecution, who were being tempted to give up on the faith altogether. And the author of Hebrews wrote this to say, don't give up. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't throw away your confidence. You have need of endurance. So I want to be sure that we see how these two commands in verses 4 through 6 fit into that context. I want us to be sure we understand that these two commands are given to us to help us endure together and to not throw away our confidence. And ultimately, as we saw at the end of chapter 12, verse 28, we are to be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and all for our God is a consuming fire. And so in our acts of obedience to these commands, we are both able to endure together and offer to God acceptable worship with the obedience of our lives. That's what he is calling us to with these commands in these verses and in particular, as we look at verses 4 through 6. Now, the topic of these commands are at the very core. And we just have to recognize this, right? The topic of these commands are at the very core of what drives much of American culture. Right? Sexual relationships and money. It plays out in entertainment, movies, Music, relationships, uh, education choices, career choices. It's even become at the core of much of American politics. It motivates so much of what uh, Americans choose to do, how they use their time. These desires, we need to recognize, are a powerful, controlling force in the lives of humanity. And as a result... They are a powerful, effective tool in the hands of Satan to woo us away from enduring together for the glory of Jesus Christ. Right, we have to recognize that this morning. These are weighty desires that Satan can use to numb us to the things of God to become idols in our life that we run after and that we pursue instead of pursuing Christ with his people. Therefore, by God's grace, we must, with his help, proactively exalt what he exalts and love what he loves and honor what he honors and be content with what he has provided so that Satan cannot use them to draw us away with these desires of the world. That's what's happening in verses four through six. So let's look at these verses, see how they call us to worship Jesus with our lives and how they help us endure together in faithfulness. So the outline for this morning is simple. Verses four through six, number one, we must honor marriage. We must honor marriage. And number two, we must guard our lives from the love of money. We must honor marriage. We must guard our lives from the love of 
of money. So number one, we must honor marriage. Look there with me at verse four. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Now let's just stop there. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Now there's some debate about whether the word all means all people or in all ways, but either way, Either decision you make about exactly what all means, it leads to the same outcome, which is the church should strive to honor marriage. That's what the author of Hebrews is calling us to, that we are to honor marriage as God's people. The word for honor here is often translated precious or costly. In other words, marriage is something to be seen as precious and costly and unique and all to be honored. And, and this call to honor is directed to the church as a whole. All of us together should seek to honor marriage. That includes everyone. It includes those who are currently married. It includes those who are single, those who are not yet married, those who are formerly married, those who are widows, whatever category of people you can think of that exist in the church. It is a call for all of us. This is not a verse that's only for the married couples in our church. Right? That's clear with what verse 4 says. Let marriage be held in honor among all, meaning all of us in all ways. May we hold it high and honor it. Now, why is that? Why is this a corporate command that we're all being called to do, regardless of what stage of life or walk of life we're in? Why are we all together called to honor marriage? Well, because marriage is a good gift from God that is designed to display the gospel. That's why. From the very beginning of time, when God created Adam and Eve, and well, he created Adam, and then he said it's not good for man to be alone, and he then created Eve to be Adam's helpmate, and it was there in the garden at the very beginning that God established marriage between one man and one woman as a good gift from God. And this man is to uh, set the pattern of leaving his family and cleaving to his wife. And the two are to become one flesh. And they are to multiply and fill the earth. This was God's good design and God's desire for human flourishing. It is his institution. It belongs to him. Furthermore, uh, in the New Testament... Paul gives us even further insight into how the very beginning, in that very beginning establishment of marriage, how even then God was preparing us and pointing us to the realities of the gospel and the relationship of Christ to the church. We see this play out in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, where, where Paul shows us how marriage helps us understand the gospel and how the gospel helps us understand marriage and its responsibilities and the roles of the husband and wife in marriage. So let me read for us Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. It's a longer passage to read, but I think it's important that we read this entire passage and get this context for what it means to honor marriage and why we must honor marriage. So Ephesians chapter 5 <clears throat> Excuse me, verses 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, I want you to notice there how the entire marriage relationship is couched in terms of mirroring and being an example of how the church relates to Christ and how Christ relates to the church. Furthermore, notice that Paul here in Ephesians quotes from Genesis, and he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting from there at the very beginning, and he says to us, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that that statement refers to Christ and the church. That by God's grace to us, through the finished work of Christ on the cross, all who place their faith in him become his church, and we become one with Christ. We are his body So therefore, at the very beginning, when marriage was established, at the very beginning of the Bible, we're told that God was also talking about the church in Jesus Christ. From day one, marriage was intended to be a showing forth of the relationship between Christ and his church. That is the intention of marriage from the beginning of time. So, therefore, yes, we all together are called to honor this institution because it is meant to show the watching world and to show one another the relationship between Christ and the church, to be an imaging forth and a striving after, displaying the gospel as it is manifested in the relationship between the church to Christ and Christ to the church. Now, I want to be clear here. That doesn't therefore mean that it is sinful to be single, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul commends singleness as a gift and as a good option for some people. In other words, this is not a command that every single person must be married. That's not what honoring marriage means here. So I just want to be clear about that. But that does not mean that we should not all together nevertheless seek to honor marriage because it is, again, a command for everyone that we all together honor marriages and the institution of marriage as a whole. Now, one of the specific ways we are called to honor marriage, we see there in the second half of verse 4. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. And even the word undefiled signifies that marriage is a setting apart. It is something that can be defiled. Therefore, it is something, there's something holy to it. There's something set apart about it that we should not want to defile. And to defile a marriage is to fail to honor it. So if we want to honor marriage, we must pursue not defiling marriage, right? That's the, uh, the point here in verse 4. And the author gives us two ways in which the marriage bed can be defiled and for which God will bring judgment. First, he says, the sexually immoral defile marriage. Now, I want to be clear that this is distinct from the second word he mentions, right? He says this is also true of adultery. So these are two separate concepts, sexual immorality and adultery, though adultery would be a a subcategory, you could say, of sexual immorality. So sexual immorality, that word refers to any physical relationship that occurs outside the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. 
So that could refer to a physical relationship that occurs before someone is married, after someone is married, if they're a widow or whatever it may be. Any physical relationship that occurs outside of the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. Therefore, you can defile marriage without yet being married. You can defile, bring defilement on marriage and on the institution of marriage, even though you yourself are not married. When you pursue physical relationships, sexual immorality, when you're pursuing physical relationships outside of the confines of marriage, when someone does that, they dishonor marriage and they defile it is what the author of Hebrews is saying. But of course, this also apply, applies to adultery. And adultery is referring to a physical relationship that occurs when someone pursues that physical relationship with someone who is not their spouse when either that person is married or they are married. That is adultery. It's a subcategory of sexual immorality. And remember... Marriage is intended to display the relationship between Christ and his church. Therefore, to pursue a physical relationship outside of that marriage, that is to display Christ in the church, is to make a mockery of the relationship between Christ and his church. Therefore, verse 4 tells us, that God will judge them. That God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous because they defile marriage. Now, I want to pause here because I think it's really important that you hear what I'm saying this morning and what God's Word is saying to us. The author of Hebrews, as God is speaking through him here in verse 4, is not saying that sexual immorality and adultery are unforgivable sins. I want you to hear that this morning. My goal this morning is not to dump guilt on your head if this is something that you've done in the past and you have repented of that sin and you have been reconciled to, to your spouse or, or you have repented of the sin that you committed before you were married and you have dealt with God and you confessed that before him and you have experienced his forgiveness through the finished work of Christ on the cross and you've experienced the, the power of the cross and the righteous life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that covers your sin and you are redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Praise be to God for that repentance and that redemption that Christ has brought to you. And my goal is not to bring up and fester old wounds, but it is to remind you of the preciousness of Christ's forgiveness to you. And to remind you that because of him, you have been declared righteous. But I also want to say that this verse is telling us that if you are guilty of these things, if you have committed sexual immorality, if you have committed adultery, and you have not repented of those sins, and you have not confessed those sins to the Lord, that you have not trusted the finished work of Christ on the cross that stands in your place for those sins, or if you are flippantly presuming on the grace of God and actively pursuing those sins because you're presuming upon his forgiveness, then this verse is very much intended to feel weighty to you and to warn you of God's judgment. That God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And therefore, I call on you, if you are guilty of these things and have not repented and confessed them before the Lord, to do that this very day. This very day. Do not presume upon God's grace. It ought to cause you to tremble and to put that sin to death. And if you're still dabbling in it, 
run to the foot of the cross, confess it, and depend on the Holy Spirit to put it to death in your life. Now, having said that, honoring marriage is so much more than just not being guilty of sexual sin. Right? That's the baseline. It's so much more than that. So I want to give just a few categories. We could talk about this the rest of this morning, but I just want to give a few categories, a few ways that we as God's people together can honor marriage. How do we create a culture where marriage is honored among us? Number one, we must define it biblically. Define it biblically. We must boldly and consistently make clear that biblical marriage is between one man and one woman, period. No questions asked, no debate about it. It is what God has said. The marriage is between one woman, uh, one man and one woman, and that this was established by God in the beginning, as we've already talked about, and that the distinctions between male and female, man and woman, in marriage is intended by God to display the relationship between Christ and the church. Therefore, we will not, by God's grace, and cannot compromise on this biblical truth of what marriage is. It also means that we must honor marriage by defining the roles in marriage according to biblical standards. That God has called for male headship in marriage and for wives to submit to their husbands. We say this without embarrassment, friends. It is what God has called us to as his people. And we honor marriage and the purpose of marriage by clearly proclaiming its purpose and proclaiming the roles that are to be fulfilled in that relationship. So by God's grace, by his grace, Lord willing, we will honor marriage in this church by consistently giving clear biblical definitions of what marriage is. Secondly, we must protect marriage. We must protect marriage. We do this in a, Lord willing, in a number of different ways. We protect marriage by, as a church and by the elders of this church using biblical discretion about who we will marry in this church. That in other words, this church is not simply a wedding venue where we provide wedding as a service to our community. That's not who we are. We protect it by guarding marriage. And we will consistently only marry people who are members of this church, who are accountable to the elders of this church, and only marry them to people who are believers, who are committed to the Lord. Those are the boundaries we want to put up. We will protect the institution of marriage by only marrying believers to each other. Further, we protect marriage by holding people accountable, right? If someone is guilty of adultery or sexual immorality, we as a church will call on them to repent through the process of biblical discipline that Jesus lays out for us. We will lovingly and gently approach them, call on them to repent. If they refuse to do so, we will bring witnesses along with us and we will gently and continually call on them to repent. And over time, if they refuse to repent and turn their back on such sins, then we will, as Jesus told us to, bring it to the church and call on them to repent of their sin. And if they refuse, we will remove them from membership and treat them as unbelievers as Paul calls us to in 1 Corinthians 5. We protect marriage by calling sin, sin, and holding people accountable, and we protect marriage by only marrying those that want to pursue Christ and honor Christ in their marriage. So we must define marriage, we must protect marriage, and finally, we must celebrate marriage. We must celebrate marriage we celebrate it as a good gift of God. We will not, Lord willing, by God's grace, speak disparagingly of marriage as some kind of life sentence or as some kind of prison that you can't escape from or other kind of mocking language that the world uses. It is not to be mocked. It is to be celebrated and honored and held high among us. 
And that also means that we as individuals who are married should guard ourselves and not speak ill of our spouses to other people. We honor marriage by celebrating marriages, rejoicing in God's faithfulness, rejoicing when we know it's someone's anniversary and we tell them, praise be to God that he has sustained you for the glory of his name. Let's celebrate it. We ought to do that. So we honor marriage by defining it, protecting it, and celebrating it. There are many other things we could say, but that's a good start. That's a good start. Let's honor marriage in this place by God's grace because marriage is a display of the good news of the gospel and the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, look, now let's connect this to the theme of Hebrews. The culture of honoring marriage helps God's people endure with faithfulness. Number one, because it displays the gospel. It displays the relationship of Christ and the church. It reminds us that Christ is committed to his church and loves us and we can depend on him and lean on him. But it also arms us to fight against worldly temptations toward sexual immorality. And this is what I mean by that. It helps us see that biblical prohibitions concerning sexual relationships is not because of some kind of prudish restrictions that God is trying to withhold something or that God is trying to withhold something from us. That's not what it's about. Honoring marriage by refusing to give in to sexual immorality, refusing to commit adultery. When we do that, we honor Christ and we uphold this beautiful picture of Christ in the church to the watching world. In other words, we should be motivated by wanting to glorify Christ with our lives and glorify Christ in marriages and not see God as some, some evil king who's keeping something good from us. No, he's giving us something good. We are able to display the glories of Christ in our relationships with one another. And when we transform our thinking about these things, it helps us to fight temptation towards sexual immorality or even adultery. Because these are sins that can numb us to the pursuit of Christ. And the more we are free from those temptations, the more aware we are of the glories of Christ instead of numbness to Christ. And that allows us to endure Christ, uh, endure together in pursuit of Christ. As we've learned in 1 Peter 2, 11 in our men's Bible study, that the desires of the flesh wage war against the soul. And so let's not let them wage war on our souls so that we can endure together for the glory of Jesus Christ. So we endure together and we worship Jesus by honoring marriage in this church. But there's another passion that can destroy us, and that is the love of money. Therefore, number two, we must guard our lives from the love of money. Look with me again at verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Look, you all probably well know if you grew up in church that the Bible is full of warnings about the love of money. Here's, here's just a few. Matthew 19, 23 and Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Or Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Can't do it. Jesus says it's not possible. Or perhaps one of the most powerful verses on this topic, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. If there's one verse I had to pick out to show you how love of money can keep you from enduring together with God's people, this is it. It can plunge us into ruin and destruction. It, craving for money and riches can cause us to wander away from the faith. Therefore, the author of Hebrews says, if we're going to endure together, we must be free from love of money because it can destroy our souls. Now, I think it's really important that we try to understand what is meant by love of money and what's meant by being content with what we have. Right? Does that, does that mean that it's sinful for a Christian to be wealthy? That God frowns upon that? That that's evil and wicked? Does it mean that it's sinful to work hard and earn a lot of income? Does, it, does being content with what we have mean that we should never work hard to buy something that we want? Right? So, so what do these things mean? I don't think that's what this passage means, but let's do the work of trying to figure it out. What are we being commanded to do here when it says that we should be free from the love of money? I mean, it's not that having money is sinful, right? It's the love of money. We see this in Psalm 62.10. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. It doesn't say you have to unload your riches. It says don't set your heart on them. Don't love it. So what are some potential symptoms that demonstrate someone may be loving money instead of just possessing it? Because there is a distinction. So what are some symptoms that you may be loving money? First, are you prioritizing making money over other godly priorities? Does your pursuit of riches and money and income cause you to neglect your family? Look, there's a place to work hard to provide for the needs of your family. Don't hear me saying otherwise. In fact, men, we are commanded to do such things. But if you are working so much and so hard because you're trying to go above and beyond the basic needs for your family and in working hard over time, constantly just trying to earn more, earn more, earn more, and that causes you to neglect the other things God has called you to do, like caring for your children and being present in their lives and loving on your wife and contributing to what needs to be done at home. If you are absent, then you are loving money and you are risking the destruction of your soul. Are you prioritizing money over other godly priorities? Look, that also applies to church involvement. Are you giving so much to your place of employment or to your business or to your job that you're trying to earn so much money that it causes you to give so much time to that that you're not giving time to God's people and to gathering with God's people and to obeying the Lord by being here and being present? Earning money, even lots of money, even millions of dollars of money is not evil. But if it is pursued to the detriment of other godly relationship and uses of time, then you have a dangerous love of money. Secondly, are you willing to lie, cheat, manipulate, or use people in order to gain riches for yourself? If you find that you are willing to lie or cheat or manipulate or use other people to gain riches for yourself, then you have a ungodly love of money. That may look like something as simple as lying on your taxes and just cheating a little bit. It may look like if you work in a place where there's a common tip jar and instead of putting the tips in the common jar you're supposed to, you keep a few dollars back for yourself. It's both in small things and in big things. There are, look, there are multi-level marketing companies, and I'm not all of them. I'm not saying that. 
But there are multi-level marketing companies and individuals in those companies that push people, especially uh, using people and what they would call their downline to enrich themselves for little regard of how it impacts the lives of those other people. They're doing nothing more than using people to enrich themselves. Now, it doesn't have to be that way, but it can be that way. And if that's happening, it's ungodly. And we have an unhealthy love of money. People should never, in any context, be viewed as nothing more than a means to your own personal wealth. Third, do you have a spirit of joyful generosity? Do you have a spirit of joyful generosity? 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul tells us that God, most of you know this verse, right? God loves a cheerful giver. He loves it. God loves a cheerful giver. So when you give money to kingdom causes, when you give money to people who are in need, when you give money to the local church, do you do so begrudgingly or do you do so with joy? If you can't find joy in giving, then you may have an ungodly love of money that is destructive to your soul. In fact, the very act of giving directs the desires of our heart. What do I mean by that? Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. This is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now listen to verse 21 of Matthew 6. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, I think often people read this verse and they get it exactly backwards. And they think what Jesus is saying is where your heart is is where your money is going to be. It's not what the verse says. It says where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Where you put your money draws your attention in your heart. Look, the most, the most obvious, clear, in-our-face example of this is something like gambling in sports. I am not recommending or condoning such things. I'm giving an example and an illustration. Let me be clear. When someone bets on a team they don't really care about, they all of a sudden become the biggest fan of that team you could imagine. Right? When you have money on the line for that team, you deeply care whether <clears throat> you deeply care whether they win that game or not. Right? You're stressed out, you're full of anxiety, it's coming down to the clock. Who's gonna win? Are they gonna make the last free throw? Are they gonna get to the end zone? Are they gonna make the field goal? You were stressed out to the max. Nothing can take your attention away from the TV in that moment. Why? Because that's where your money is. And your heart follows your money. So, therefore, when you give to the church, you care a lot more about the church. When you give to missions, to specific missionaries, you care a lot more about how that couple is doing, how that individual is doing, how that man is doing or that woman is doing who is serving overseas or who is planting a church in another state. You want to hear from them. You want to pray for them. You want to hear how they're doing. Is my money helping you? 
You care deeply for them because your heart is drawn toward where you're placing your money. When you give to crisis pregnancy centers, you care a lot more about the ministry that they're doing and how effectively they're doing it and how they're saving the lives of the unborn. You pray for them. You visit them. You get their newsletters. You check in on them. You care about them because where your treasure is, there will your heart also be. And so we must free ourselves from love of money by joyfully giving to the things of God so that our hearts will be drawn toward the things of God. One of the best ways to fight the idle factory of your heart is to give money to kingdom purposes so that your heart will be drawn to those purposes. So listen, if any of these three are true of you, that you prioritize money over other godly priorities or other godly relationships, if you're willing to sin, lie, cheat, manipulate, use people to increase your riches, if you find yourself not able to give to kingdom causes with joy, then this passage is calling on you to repent of your love of money and ask for God's help to put it to death. So how do we do that? How do we free ourselves from love of money? Well, this passage gives us two ways that we'll quickly run through. First, the first way is there in verse five that we must be content with what we have. The first way you fight love of money is to pursue contentedness with what you have. Now again, that doesn't mean that it's wrong to make more money, to buy other things. It it does not make that wrong to purchase a bigger home. But it does mean in your current station in life, do you find your heart free of grumbling and complaining about your financial situation? Are you content? It doesn't mean it's easy. Right? Not having enough money can be very hard. And I don't want to make light of that. But we are called to be content with what the Lord has provided. And Philippians chapter 2 verse 14 says that our lives should be free from grumbling and complaining. And that includes things like not having enough money. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5 says that coveting is idolatry. That wanting what other people have in a sinful way is to create other gods that you're worshiping. So if we're going to be free from the love of money, we must ask the Lord to give us a deep abiding sense of contentment with how he has provided for us. And when we are content with with what we have, we are freed from love of money. And then when more money comes our way, when we get that job promotion, when, when our business takes off and we're doing better than we could have ever imagined, then we are well positioned to use our resources for the glory of God because we've already achieved contentedness with where we are. That's how being content frees us from love of money. And then finally, We fight against love of money by looking to the promises of God. You see that there at the end of verse 5 and into verse 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for or because he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the promise that God has made to us. He has made it to all of his children, to all who trust in Christ as their all-sufficient Savior. He has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, you do not need money or wealth or riches to assure your safety and security because Romans 8 has already told us that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So even if our economy tanks and World War III starts and the banking system is hacked and we lose every penny we have and inflation runs rampant and the world literally falls apart and all your riches mean nothing, you still have everything you need because he will not leave you or forsake you for all eternity. Even if we lose everything materially, 
we are still held firm in the grip of Jesus Christ because when everything fails, he remains faithful. Therefore, we must fight against the temptation to find security in our wealth. And instead, we must find security in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, verse 6 says, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Man can do a lot of terrible, awful, cruel things to you. Man can take your life and take your money and take your home and take everything materially that you hold dear. But he cannot take your eternity in the presence of Jesus Christ away from you. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. The life of Jesus Christ stands in my place. His death on the cross has achieved my forgiveness and redemption. His resurrection allows me to one day be resurrected in a glorified body like his, called to the new heaven and the new earth where we will forever be co-heirs with Jesus Christ and all things will belong to us for all eternity. What in the world can man do to us? So let your life be free from the love of money. And when that happens, we will be well positioned and prepared to endure together for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your kindness and goodness to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the overflowing, abundant grace that you have shown us by making us co-heirs with Jesus Christ, by adopting us as your children, by keeping us firm and steadfast to the last day. And Father, I pray that we would, as your people, honor the gospel and the display of the relationship between Jesus Christ, our Savior, and his precious church through honoring the institution of marriage and through honoring marriages that are in our church. May we celebrate them and hold them high and work together to sustain them, to define them, protect them, and celebrate them. Father, I pray that you would bring conviction to us in places where we may be failing to honor marriage, that you would call us to repentance and to run to the foot of the cross with those sins. Father, I pray that you would help us to fight against the love of money that so easily creeps up in every single one of our hearts, including my own. Father, help us to put it to death and to find our security and our hope in the good and faithful promises that you have made to us and in the finished work of Jesus Christ and not in wealth and riches. And Father, as we pursue these commands, I pray that you would use these, uh, this, these acts of obedience for the glory of your name, that we as your people may endure together to the very end. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.